Hello, listeners, and welcome to the Ed Surge On Air podcast. I'm your co-host, Mary Jo Matta. Personalized learning is a term that is no stranger to interpretation, even to the point that some of the Ed Surge writers have started to argue about whether it's worth defining or not. But no matter how a school or district defines personalized learning, here's a question. Is it worth including technology in that definition? Or does EdTech merely distract educators from understanding and delivering on what students really need? Well, back in early March at South by Southwest EDU, three education research experts, Eileen Rudden of Boston's Learn Launch, Chris Ling Vergara of Chicago's Leap Innovations, and Mohammed Chowdhury of the Bay Area's Silicon Valley Education Foundation, join me on a panel to discuss the very answer to this muddy and oftentimes challenging question, which again really comes down to, does tech support personalized learning or distract us from what's really important? We have the recording right here, and we're about to give it to you in a second, right after this. This episode of the EdSurge On Air podcast is brought to you by the EdSurge Next newsletter. Get the latest news and views about higher education technology each week. Sign up for the EdSurge Next newsletter. Just visit edsurge.com and click on subscribe. All right, listeners, let's get to the main event, personalized learning. Now, this phrase has gotten thrown around relatively frequently over the past one to two years. And while at South by Southwest EDU, I sat down with three experts to discuss what exactly it looks like when technology does or does not support personalized learning in the classroom. Now, each of them comes from a different city and different areas around the country, so they each bring both examples of success and failure when it comes to ed tech and personalized learning. Let's get to the panel. Uh, we are uh, joined by a fabulous group of three individuals representing organizations that are part of the Learning Assembly, which essentially brings together different orgs looking to bring technology into schools and districts. And instead of me giving them an introduction myself, I'm actually going to let them go down the line in a moment to share what their backgrounds are. A couple of quick housekeeping items. I encourage you to tweet with hashtag South by Southwest EDU for... Uh, questions that you have, uh, quotes that you think are interesting. It's good for us to be able to see what has kind of a staying power, saying power in these panels, and we always look at them after this. So if you have your Twitter up, please do that. The other thing is that we will be taking uh, questions for a Q&A at the end of this panel. Uh, there is the slido.com app. So if you have a question, feel free to put it in there. You can also... Uh, I think you can either go online to slido.com or you can access it through the South by Southwest EDU app. Either of those options works. If you would prefer to just uh, add your two cents to other people's questions, you can also upvote and downvote the questions that you see. And what we'll do is that the most popular questions will rise to the top and those will be the ones that we address first. All right, everybody good? Cool, let's get started. Okay, so. To my left, we have the esteemed Mohammed Chowdhury, who is the CEO of the Silicon Valley Education Foundation out in the Bay Area, where I am also from. Welcome, Mohammed. Thank you. Can you give us a 60-second introduction of who you are? Absolutely. So, 
At the Silicon Valley Education Foundation, we are absolutely obsessed with preparing students for college and career readiness. And we do that primarily through um, a STEM focus. And, and the three focus areas, one is around policy work, how do we bring good policies um, in schools, give you an idea of Silicon Valley from San Francisco to Gilroy. You may know San Francisco, you probably don't know Gilroy. There's about 56 school districts comprising of 450,000 students. So that area, how do, we, how do we make an impact in policy, in direct programming, like we have a great Elevate Math program, which helps with math, and a 49er STEM Leadership Institute. And the third area is around innovation. How do we bring technology to the classroom, which we, I hope we'll be talking more about today. Awesome, thank you. And if you don't know, Gilroy is known for garlic, I believe. Yes. They have, yes. I think, the biggest garlic festival in the country. Fun fact. Don't tweet that because it's really not that important, uh, except if you're from Gilroy. Is anyone in here from Gilroy? Okay, good. All right, let's move on. Uh, we next have Chris Ling Vergara, who joins us from Chicago, Illinois. He is the Chief of Learning Innovation for Leap Innovations. Welcome, Chris. Who are you? Good morning, everybody. Um, so Leap, we're uh, education, sort of R&D hub in Chicago, working a lot with um, public, private, and charter schools around personalized learning. Uh, myself, I was a teacher for about eight years, so primarily eighth and ninth grade English and science. Uh, my master's in curriculum technology and served in roles in sort of central office with tech integration uh, a little bit down in New Orleans after Katrina and then now here in uh, my hometown, Chicago. Awesome. Welcome. And last but not least, we have Eileen Rudden, who is from Boston, Massachusetts. Are you, are you a Boston sports fan? Oh. Yes. Uh, <laughs> I would like I to know more about I, but that. But I won't invoke everyone's hatred of the Patriots right now. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> you can talk with her after if you really have strong thoughts. Um, so Eileen is the co-founder of Learn Launch. Can you give us a little background as to what uh, you've done in education? Uh, absolutely. Um, I am actually a, a long-term uh, software executive, but for the past 10 years, I have been working in education. I was actually the chief of college and career preparation at the Chicago Public Schools, and I'm the founder, uh, co-founder of Learn Launch. And for the past five years, we have been working in the Boston, greater Boston area uh, to drive innovation to transform learning. Um, and I'm the board chair of the Learn Launch Institute, our nonprofit, and we're working to support individual innovators through our conferences and events, to support schools moving to personalized learning through our MassNet operate, uh, operation, which is part of the Learning Assembly. Mm -hmm. And we are the host of the, uh, with the Massachusetts Department of Elementary and Secondary Ed, of the Maple Consortium, which is the Massachusetts Personalized Learning EdTech Consortium, to uh, move Massachusetts uh, to personalized learning. Awesome, thank you. Can we give a little round of applause for these guys for getting up so early? Yes. I thought that gentleman right there was standing up because he was really excited, but he was just taking off his backpack. But thank you for being prepared. I appreciate that. Okay, and uh, just to give you a quick introduction to who I am, um, Mary Jo Matta, Ed Surge, I am uh, a recovering educator in the sense that uh, I was a teacher in Kip Houston and then was with the Catholic school system in Los Angeles before LAUSD went through the one-to-one -one iPad debacle that the LA Times so lovingly covered. Uh, the Catholic school system actually went through a miniature version of that, which I was there for. Uh, so I have both positive and negative feelings about personalized learning, and I'm sure that will come out most interestingly in the questions posed today. <clears throat> Speaking of personalized learning, now, first question for you guys. Uh, 
personalized learning is a phrase that has gotten thrown around relatively frequently over the past one to two years. Uh, it has showed up on EdSurge a lot more. It's been showing up really everywhere. Is there a singular definition for personalized learning? I mean, what does that mean or not mean to each of you? And anyone can start. Well, um, I think personalized learning is a, a, a umbrella term really for a variety of of approaches to to learning i mean for probably the past 15 years or so educators have been asked to differentiate uh and personalized learning i think is is the next phase of of differentiation that also brings in student student voice and choice brings in the capabilities to more match uh the student with uh, a lesson which is at the zone of personalized uh, of their of their proximal development, um, and it's really, really, I think more of a more or less of a process to get to complete mastery based learning. I think that's a great definition. Let me uh, give two examples of how I, I think about it. One is if there was a classroom of, of thirty kids, and let's say Mary Jo and I were both in that class, she was naturally number one and I was number 30. We force ranked everyone, one to 30. She was number one, I was number 30. Currently, Chris being the teacher would teach to number 16, one behind the middle. She'd be bored, I'd be lost. So I see personalized learning as an opportunity on how do we have her take off and have me catch up in that scenario. Let me give you one more example of that. And of course, I've got to bring my kids into this equation. Um, so my son, um, we have a great product, Seesaw, that we that's one of our products that that, that went through our process. Um, my son's teacher uses it as well. So he there was a picture of his worksheet. I saw he he missed one question on there. Three minus three. Uh, he's a kindergartner, not in high school yet. Um, um, so he. Um, I looked at it and said, oh, he missed one. So I took it to school and I showed it to one of our math teachers that, that's on our staff. I'm like, look, he only missed one. And the, the teacher who looked at it said, do you know why he missed this one? Because he doesn't understand the concept of zero. And, and most kids don't understand that concept. And here's how you got to show them a number line and show what zero is. You know, The Romans didn't even have a zero. Uh, it came, came by... Um, later. So that's just a one example of you can look at a sheet and say, oh, you missed one. What's the big deal? Versus really understanding and providing that feedback. Um, I, a lot of us in this room have access to folks who can help us do that. Imagine if all parents had that access through technology, through various means, but really understanding um, that. So the take home, takeaway message is zero is really important. <laughs> okay. Awesome. And totally building off of that, uh, same thing, I got a kindergartner who keeps me humble for sure. Um, but in the, in the work at LEAP, when we first started, same thing, personalized learning was getting thrown around all the time with schools and educators and ed techs. And so we, we did about a year-long project to just bring some definition to what is the student experience in a personalized learning classroom, because it's a mix, to your point, of like sort of values and what you believe in and how you kind of create it. Um, and at the end, we came across with like sort of four main parts. So the first one is learner focused. So for my son, to your point, he's in kindergarten. Does the teacher understand him in terms of strengths, needs, and interests? So like Ryan, he loves trains. If you give him any subject matter with trains involved, he will learn it and love it and read it and go with it. But if it's about, I don't know, about crocodiles or something, his interest is kind of different. So how do you start with the child first instead of the curriculum? 
Uh, the second thing is learner demonstrated. So just to your point, just because I'm born in a certain year, don't put me in a class of students, but really think about where am I ready to really progress? So he's an awesome reader. Thankfully, I don't like to read, but he loves to read. <laughs> so like, let him go to town and go to it um, and really you know, remove the ceiling for these kids. At the same time, he needs scaffolding for math, so how do you provide that? Mm -hmm. uh, third one, learner-led, so it's the student agency piece. So the kids aren't just sitting there passively letting information wash over, but really, how do they set goals? How do they take ownership? How do they see themselves as an active learner? So they're not dependent on an adult to teach them everything in life, but actually take some initiative. And then the last thing for us, which I think is big and, and important for me in this kind of personalized learning is learner connected in that learning is social, it's not alone. So the goal is not kids sitting on laptops with headphones and in isolation. Um, the goal is connecting and working together and collaboration and how do you move through that. And so there's a big part for personalized learning along with like going beyond just the four walls of the school to getting in the community and the real world uh, and really making it all kind of come together. So exactly what you were saying, Chris, about this idea of connection, of the learner being at the center. I've seen examples of schools where they claim that they do personalized learning, but the kids are on headphones and they're staring at a computer. So if we're starting from zero, if a school or district wants to go personalized, how do they even get into that? I mean, it seems like Part of that is deciding, okay, what does personalized learning mean to us? But what have you each seen work when you've talked to schools or districts who say, we want to go personalized, here's how we're going to do it? Well, I think, I think we see uh, that the start may be some individual teachers mm -hmm. um, that want to move in that direction, but that the real start actually is a team of teachers with a supportive principal mm -hmm. um, that are going to be a pilot for the rest of the school, and then based on their success, if it, if they are successful, then others will follow because you know teachers and schools are motivated uh, to have their students succeed, and the experience of these pilots can often motivate and incent others others to follow, mm -hmm. and so that important experience of a pilot. And that's focused on something that's meaningful to a school. And then the follow-on kind of people following upon success is what we like to encourage and, su and support. Totally. And the bill on that, uh, I think it just comes down to like find your why. Like when you mentioned LA with the iPads, I've seen other schools and they like to, for showmanship, they bring in a lot of ed tech, but they don't have a why behind it. Mm -hmm. And really, at the end of the day, these are these are curriculum decisions, and these are like student experience decisions uh, as you move. So, step one, I agree 100 percent. Like, kind of build your team. Like, you don't want a superstar teacher trying to go off and do this because they'll do it, they'll burn out, or they'll leave the organization, and then the, everything just kind of recedes back. So, you need that core team uh, working together, and then really unpacking like, what is your why? Because we find in Chicago, it's a little bit of a like a paradigm shift because. When I was growing up, to your point, it was like they taught to the middle. Um, I think there still is a lot of teacher training where you're just used to that or you mimic what you learned growing up. And so there is a shift to say, hey, instead of just curriculum first and all that prep, step one is just get to know my kids and what do they need. And then from there, that drives the conversation on the why. And I find, honestly, we, we sort of like, was it the young teachers, the new teachers, the veterans, like who's going to love this? And we find like everyone does, they just gotta like bring it back out 
Mm-hmm. Like, especially, I mean, honestly, me as a teacher of eight years, like by the end I was burning out uh, and it's tough. But when you give people a safe place to really talk about like, what do they want to do with their kids? They're in it for the kids. But how do you bring that back to the table to then drive the tech decisions and what they do at the mm-hmm. school? So uh, I'll take a little different cut at this and the problems we've seen around this as well. Um, the first thing we've seen is that school districts or schools don't think about the plumbing and they want to go directly to, I heard about this great product and I want to use it. And the superstar teacher uses it and 30 kids are on it. Good. But what, what we've seen is the, the right way to start is really think about the plumbing of your school district and if it can actually, in Silicon, you know, we're Silicon Valley, the embarrassing story about Silicon Valley, there's two Silicon Valleys. There's a Silicon Valley up 280 where you'll find all the riches in the world and then there's a Silicon Valley up a Highway 101 where you'll, it looks like anywhere else in the world. And we've seen schools in Silicon Valley where 30 computers watching a video crashes their wireless infrastructure. We've seen schools where, you know, the, the computers are, are older than older than the students. Um, and so all those issues is a, so we've taken a three-part approach in this, and I would encourage any school or district to do this as well. First is making sure there's recurring money for technology and personalized learning. In California, we, we, uh, if you're familiar with the California infra, um, structure of funding, there's two types. There's a bond funding and, and partial tax funding. The, the benefit of bond funding, I won't go into too much details, is it's approved at a 55% threshold. We passed the first technology ed tech bond, which got passed at 55%. We brought in $118 million to a school district over 18 years for their refresh cycles. The reason that was important is we don't want people to go, you know, scrounging up money and scraping up money to uh, fund their technology needs. This is this is a long-term play for this district. It's an, literally an 18-year play, and they know there will be refresh cycles. The second is really understanding uh, and, and and having some an assessment tool to see where's their technology today. We built a great tool uh, with the help of a bunch of folks like PwC and others where we can go into a district, it's available um, open and free on our website, but to really go in and say, what does your technology infrastructure look like today? before you try to improve it. Lots of districts, you know, they buy the latest and greatest gadgets, but that, that plumbing, you know, it's the most boring part. How do you get that plumbing right to make sure that that student, when they need that tool on, in the classroom and being responsive, uh, is it being responsive and is it working? Um, in that assessment, we also look at how are the policies of that district working? Give you an example, we've, um, we've learned privacy, student privacy, um, how, how do you maintain that with all these, all these great ed tech companies over 4,000 of them in the country coming into the classroom. What's their privacy policy? So we had, we've developed a unified privacy contract to help districts um, fast, make, make that purchasing process from nine months to three months uh, in terms of how, what, what are your policies to make sure that data isn't, isn't given away and sold. And the third part is, is really where, well, I think where I took a long way to get to the answer here, Mary yep. Jo, but, but the third part, and I think, is where you need a trusted advisor to help assess the tools inside the classroom. Um, and I really believe it's from a classroom to a school than to a district. Um, and, and how you do that is really making sure that things that come in have some evidence that they work. But with your own teachers, the hardest part in this is culture. I think technology is easy. There's no whiz-bang technology that I've seen in this. There's no next Google in terms of technology. It's really about how the culture of a school and a district work to bring it up 
I, uh, the, what you said about plumbing actually resonates with me a lot because I remember when Los Angeles was going through that whole issue, there was a teacher in LAUSD who was taking pictures of basically his crumbling school, putting him on a blog and saying, thank you, John Deasy, because you were giving us iPads, but the kids don't even have a place to go to the bathroom. So it's interesting because I think the common thread is each of you are really getting at the the fact that it's not really the technology necessarily that's the biggest issue. It's all of the constructs around it. So it's the vision. It's um, identifying whether you have the correct infrastructure. Do you have any examples that you've seen in each of your work of schools or districts or singular educators or principals that have really done this well or poorly? (laughs) Well, it happens. You know, well, uh, the story that I like to tell really is because it's a journey. And uh, one of the favorite sco- my favorite schools that we've been working with is actually a very poor school in Boston that doesn't have the McCormick that middle school that actually has challenges mm-hmm. with its with its network and had challenges with the amount of 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 actually devices that they had. But because of a committed core group of literacy um, teachers who actually came to us from Teach Plus, that great um, organization, uh, basically just have embraced uh, working with uh, a particular ed tech product to get better understanding of where their students are. And uh, 80% of them were, were below grade level to start um, to understand exactly what they needed to help work again, you know, with 30 kids in a class, work with kids who ranged in, in, in reading levels from second grade, you know, up to 11th grade, work with those students so that they could all move and really have been closing gaps and moving that school forward. Again, starting necess- without having, next year actually the, the district is gonna have them be to one-to-one after two years of working mm. working through this, but they didn't start off having a great uh, you know, sort of technical infrastructure they had to share. They had to do all kinds of crazy, you know, sort of sharing of, of, of Chromebooks. Uh, but because of the interest of the, of that teacher group to just figure out something to help move their kids, um, and work and support, you know, from, from, from Learn Launch in that, in that setting, you know, they've been able to move from, you know, we want to differentiate to much more, of a personalized instruction. Is it all student voice and choice? No, there's some, uh, there's some student selection. There's student uh, decision about how to demonstrate ma- mastery. Is it completely mastery-based? No, but they're moving you know, along what I think is a, a continuum. And so you wouldn't necessarily bring people there like you would to like summit schools mm-hmm. and in, in, in San Francisco to see the future. Um, but I just can't, I'm just so proud of the progress that they've made and that they're going to continue to make um, as a part of that journey to personalized. I want to stick with something you said real quick to both of you gentlemen on the panel. Do you think that 100% student choice and voice, like Eileen said, is crucial for personalized learning to happen? What role do the adults play in that equation? Because that seems to be something that people kind of go back and forth on. Yeah, and I think sometimes I feel like the pendulum swings a little bit too far. Sort of like, hey, voice of choice and like freedom and go. And it's just, I mean, it's, it's kind of like my, 
Sonny's a five-year-old. Like part of my role as an adult is to scaffold life for him and provide some structure and discipline. Scaffolding life, I like that. <laughs> and all that kind yeah. of good stuff. And things with normal control. So like the developmental age is, is really important. And it also, I don't think people talk about this enough, like the rigor. Rigor is, is real. And I think sometimes we see people swing so much to voice and choice that, um, I don't want to say it's accountability, but for the child mm -hmm. to still know like what is top quality work, what is mm -hmm. rigor, and how do I push mm -hmm. them? Um, I mean, we often refer to teachers moving to more of like, you're not the center of all information of the universe, but you still have a very strong mentor coaching along with expertise role mm -hmm. in the classroom with what you're doing. Um, and now as you somebody it's almost like a personal trainer, like they're the expert on how I improve myself and they're the one also yelling at me in the gym to like push myself harder when I'm just slacking off and like not really running that hard. Can I add one other thing? Cause sure. I tried to do this in this particular school. One of the things the teachers described is actually more student ownership of their learning, which mm -hmm. actually in the middle school is, you know, very important thing. And that the fact that they had more data because the, the particular product was, you know, there was much more, it wasn't like having data every six weeks or at the end of a unit or at the end of a, a formative benchmark cycle. It was, you know, every day or every week. And the, the students basically believed this data in a way that was different than the grades. Mm. And that was completely fascinating is that in the grades was considered to be, uh, you know, issues of compliance and whether you showed up and whether you raised your hand, but they accepted that they needed to master this material and they, and the teachers reported that the students had more ownership of their learning. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Mohammed? Yeah, I'm, I'm in the camp where, where I think that you really need to go back to the, the learning goal. If I need to learn my multiplication tables, you can provide me a lot of tools to do that, technology tools, paper tools, you, know, you can practice with me. And, um, parents are involved, everyone's involved. But at the, end, at the end of the day, we need to really go back to what the goal is and how we get there. Um, and so um, I would say we're going more, um, perhaps too far towards the choice argument versus mm -hmm. keeping the learning goal in mind. And you know, the, my five-year-old needs to, uh, I've got twins by the way, so I'll double your, <laughs> I'll double your game here. Um, I asked them what should I say this morning and, and they said to make sure you address everyone as my fellow Americans. So I'm supposed to say that to all of you. Uh, uh, <laughs> um, but, but, you know, there's, there's the teachers, there's a team that's supporting them. And I've got twins, a so boy, girl, right? My girl, five-year-old, she's running for president. And she's very clear she's going to be president in 2048. So, um, and the boy couldn't care less. Um, um, and, but each of their teachers, the parents, um, were really involved in their learning goals. And some places where you use technology, other places we don't. But um, I think the balance has probably shifted a little too far towards the choice side. Yeah. I, I've, I, I've seen that. And at EdSearch, we, we go to, around to a lot of schools and write pieces about districts and both the pros and the cons of going personalized. And I have seen what happens when you have almost too much choice to the point where the students don't know where something begins and where it ends. And I'm wondering, in addition to that, what are some of the other pitfalls that you've seen in terms of when personalized learning has been implemented? Here's something that people might focus too heavily on or don't focus on enough. Money, I know, Muhammad, you said earlier, which I would echo that. I think I have seen that issue a lot. Mm -hmm. We got a bond this year, but where are we going to be 10 years from now? Exactly. Any other pitfalls that you see? 
Well, one of, one of the things that, that we've seen is as um, schools uh, are adopting some of the adaptive learning pro uh, products, mm -hmm. um, it's hard for teach it's hard to know what's going to change before you actually use the product. Ha. And I'm sorry, I meant to say that in my head. I'm that loud. <laughs> sorry. And so, you know, one of the first things okay. that comes up and you'd think that you could plan for this in advance, but sometimes I think, you know, there's more you know, job embedded professional development by learning by doing um, is, okay, how, how is this going to change my use of time? Um, how is this going to integrate specifically with the curriculum? Um, and, and that kind of work, I think, is the messy work in, 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 in the classroom that, um, you know, you hope that that can be planned for in advance, but sometimes it's actually, it's happening on the field, you know, in the, um, not to use a sports analogy. But. <laughs> <laughs> well, what we've also seen, you know, beyond, beyond money is really around the idea of, of it's, it's more than the teacher. We, we, we can take, in, in any district, we can find great teachers to use a great tool. Mm -hmm. What we haven't seen is where, from the superintendent to the assistant superintendent of instruction to the uh, principal, they're all aligned. They're all leveraging the data, understanding what contributes to success, and that whole string is aligned all the way even beyond, uh, beyond the superintendent to the school board. Um, and until they understand what value this adds and how, and they invest in the whole whole game versus, hey, I, um, one of our parents has developed a great app. Let's put it in, in one of the classrooms. Um, you know, we see too much of that. Um, and shifting to that, once you have the money, is really aligning, aligning and really using data. I, I haven't seen enough of that. And I think yes to both for sure. Um, also, like cleaning out the closet, I guess is the way I would put it. Um, so what? Like, growing up in Chicago, we had a family Chinese food restaurant, Liang's Chinese Food. Um, egg rolls, fried rice, all that good stuff. Is and it still there? It is still there, actually. <laughs> Although not as good as when I was growing up. But <laughs> I remember as we um, were struggling at certain points, the strategy from my dad was to, like, add more things to the menu. And if you're not careful, suddenly, like, your menu, I don't know if you've noticed this was family restaurants, but we're notorious for that. They have these massive menus of like, you get it Italian and you get Chinese, you get pizza. And you're like, what is this thing anymore? Uh, as it adds in over time. And I think we find over and over with the schools we work with in Chicago, mm -hmm. you step in and they got, they have money and they have ed tech, but it goes back to like, they don't know why. They just got a whole mess of stuff. Yep. And they sit down as a team for the first time as an English department. And like, oh, I didn't even know we had logins to that. And we have this and this and this. And, and like, it's just not a coherent strategy. And so I would say part of the big pitfall, step one is like clean up the closet. Like sit down and like, what are you using both ed tech and non ed tech? Cause just look at resources as a resource. What's the purpose of each and just clean house. Cause it goes back to like, we see people try and add another ingredient to the mix and there's not space for it. And so the implementation is poor, there's frustration. You don't know what's going on. Mm -hmm. So I think step one is like simplify. And I think simplifying is really hard, but I think it's key to the design aspect for personalized learning. There is really something to be said about the, I think they call it the paradox of choice. Yeah. Mm -hmm. If you have thousands of cereal options, you're much less satisfied with your choice versus if you have three, which is why I only have three cereal choices in my house. <laughs> um, has anyone in here ever been overwhelmed by the choices of technology out there? Just show of hands. Mm -hmm. Okay, so yeah, this is a pretty common problem. I mean, in the EdSearch product index alone, I think we have something like 14, more than 1,400 tools. 
And I have heard educators say, give me a professional development tool. And I say, okay, here are 150 options. Mm -hmm. And so what they do is they kind of go, all right, and they throw money at everything. But in reality, you probably could have gotten just as much as you wanted from a free ed camp model that you did at the end of every month, 12 months out of the year. Just my personal thought. Um, that being said, there are definitely spaces out there that I'm sure all of us have seen technology. Yeah, go that. for it. So you're absolutely right. Mm -hmm. the, we overinvest in the tool and the technology. Mm -hmm. this, this, um, this example I gave of this $118 million, mm -hmm. they made sure a bulk of that money was for the training part. Um, and and that's kind of like oh well, you know these these are young millennials teachers they're gonna they're gonna they know how to use two tools but how do you integrate it and whatnot beyond turning it on and pressing go um, if that wasn't deliberately invested I think we'd have a lot more problems I would agree with that on the note of more problems are there any spaces that you think technology could do a better job of solving well, where things haven't been developed Mary Jo can I go back to the kind of the Paradox of choice yes. for a minute. Mm -hmm. um, you know, one of the things that the learning assembly groups are doing is that we are doing research to build the evidence base on what works. Okay, because right now I would describe the way that the paradox of choice works is, you know, sort of you find a colleague who has, uh, you know, a group of students that might be somewhat like yours and say, you know, what, what works, <laughs> mm -hmm. what have you used, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things that the Learning Assembly is doing is we actually are doing some, you know, sort of, uh, research to look at product efficacy uh, so that we can build the evidence base. Because actually, when you come right down to it, even though there may be thousands of products, um, there are probably in particular area, you know, no more than a handful that actually have gotten, um, that are actually showing to move the needle for students. And to build on that, I think what we're all trying to work to do and would love to see to continue to evolve is just smarter consumers, essentially. Mm -hmm. Like, I think the, the shininess of EdTech is starting to fade away, and I think it's sort of a, a good thing because we want to make sure it's, it's rigorous, you know, efficacious, like effective products and not just another worksheet generator or something to that nature. Because I think in the early stages, there was a lot of like, oh, I don't have to spend time in the copy room because it's single grade my math stuff or whatever that is. And like, I don't know, it just feels like 1990s to me, like we can do so much better than that as an education industry and institutions, but I think part of it is on the teacher side and purchasing side of being smart enough, like we're not going to buy the crap anymore and actually look for quality products. You heard it here first, Chris Lingvergaard did say the word crap <laughs> on an EdTech panel, which frankly I've used many times, but never on a stage in front of a large group of people. With these um, mics. With these mics and lights and a photographer and videographer. Um, not to burst the bubble on the efficacy idea, but I... <sighs> Yeah, I, okay, so, because Eileen, earlier you said, you know, there is a problem when tools disappear, because they're all... At, any, are there any entrepreneurs in here? Okay, so you guys know making a tool stick and last is hard, and it's not just about the efficacy. It's about can you get money to support it? You know, do you have a team to support it? And so tools are disappearing, coming into play. Efficacy takes a long time to prove. How, how can you do it quickly enough to actually make judgment calls about tools before some of them might actually disappear? 
You know, there's, there's different levels, right? So what we do is we do rapid, rapid cycle testing. I mean, mm-hmm. you, you can do so just to understand. Um, but it's going back to um, a lot of times, what are you measuring? Mm-hmm. And a lot of districts and, and, and schools don't, don't know that. So what we've done is we've set up rapid cycle testing where we're pro- providing rapid feedback. You, you, you don't want to do a double-blind study with, the, with these tools because by the time the study is done, the product will have evolved uh, you know, four right. generations. Yep. Um, but, but the real feedback and how you're incorporating what the teachers are achieving and how you're applying it and how you're learning it, we've seen tools where the school is using it for a very different intended purpose than what the entrepreneur thought they were building it for. Um, but once they understand that intended purpose, they measure against that, they're getting, they're getting the results. Anyone else? Yeah, totally agreed. I think there's a lot of, well, one, the flush, like it's a, it's a two-way communication. Like the edtech developers and teachers, I mean, they're partners in all of this because at the end of the day, we're trying to create the best experience for our students. Mm-hmm. So I think the more two-way communication there is for sure, and then on the efficacy side, I think we need to make sure we expand like definition of success is beyond just test score gains. There's a lot more to that in terms of growth of the child in education. And so that's one part of it. And that can definitely take more time. Um, and part of the work at LEAP is trying to see the longitudinal side of this of students that are using certain products and implementations. But anybody knows the, the magic is in the classroom and the practices around it. Mm-hmm. And so it, it, we were talking about this before the panel a lot of this work is all like change in human behavior and teacher practice and how does that evolve? So then if you have a switch in a tech product or a new one comes on the market that's superior, you know, it's like Hotmail to Gmail. Like things will change as technology evolves and that's fine, but how do we as adults and professionals be able to switch to that newer technology that's gonna help us do our job better and not be tied or married to one single thing, but overall our, our paradigm, our approach to the work has shifted. Yeah. and. You know, in terms of the studying the efficacy, uh, LearnLaunch, we're more working in the rapid cycle trial um, mm-hmm. as well. I think many of us are struggling with getting N sizes that are large enough actually to judge mm-hmm. um, product efficacy. You know, it's also extremely difficult to um, to actually have school systems understand the value of the research as well as, you know, they're eager to, for support for the move to personalized learning and the support in terms of you know, selecting and uh, implementing uh, promising ed tech products, but, you know, all of the data side of the, the data agreements and the, the, the research maybe has less kind of, um, uh, has less interest, honestly, to some of, the, some of the school districts. There are, you know, but beyond the rapid cycle trials, there are groups like the Proving Ground at Harvard that mm-hmm. are actually getting larger ends, but, you know, they're really only being used in districts that have already committed to um, using technology, you know, as a, a, a prime instructional uh, tool for, for student improvement. Mm-hmm. And so there are relatively few of, of those. Um, so I think this is, you know, it's, it's early days and this is evolution and you, you got to invent something before you can test it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's kind of where we are now. Uh, but I'm, I'm encouraged because I don't think that, um, the the many numbers of teachers and and uh, innovative principals that are moving in this direction would do it without you know seeing seeing results in yeah. their in their students. I'm all about research in the classroom as long as I don't have to read another damn white paper. Has any educator in here ever read a white paper? God bless you. I hope you had a drink afterwards. Um, so. 
<laughs> we were going to talk a little bit more about the technology pieces, but mindful of the fact that it seems like this audience is predominantly educators. And how many of you are educators in here? A lot of you. Okay. So, the yeah. Thank you. Muhammad's the only one that clapped. Good job, bud. Nice work. Um, so, you mentioned Chris the paradigm shift. Yesterday, I had a conversation with Dr. Cedric Ellis from the Macomb District in Mississippi, and they've gone personalized. They've actually kind of adapted the summit model, but one of his biggest problems related to that idea of student success, that parents and the state have a different definition of what student success should look like, tends to be performance on testing, versus what he and his administrators wanted to do. How do you create then this paradigm shift to bring technology and personalized learning in when you have all of these different groups that you have to work with. The state, oftentimes there's you know local elements that play into it, parents, surrounding communities, even the kids themselves. Yeah, to just kind of step through it, um, one, I mean with ESSA and states now submitting like their plans for implementation, granted we'll see at the federal level if ESA sticks around, but it's actually a pretty huge opportunity where you can now define multiple means of success. Mm -hmm. um, and Jenny McGuire here, she uses this analogy. Well, it's, sometimes it's almost like the chains are off the elephant, but it doesn't realize it can move. Like there's actually a lot more freedom around how we define success at a state level, but it's up to the states to really uh, doing it well. Mm -hmm. And so I think there's a big part in terms of your local policy and advocacy of, of like, is your state putting together a robust ESSA's plan that moves beyond what No Child Left Behind did? Um, at the district side, kind of echoing what Aline Mohammed mentioned, there's a lot of like building your your team. So there's parent involvement, community involvement, uh, really coming to kind of the why and your defined side of success to it. Mm -hmm. um, and I think there's a part where, like I'm thinking through the work in Chicago. So I give huge credit to Chicago Public Schools because they've created a personalized learning department and have really gone deep into this and part of that is providing, I guess, cover or a sense of safety for their principals and teachers doing the work, of realizing there might be an implementation dip, like as you learn or do anything new. And so as you step into that realm, a lot of it for this kind of change in practice is realizing like the first time you shoot a basketball, you're not gonna hit 100%. Like you gotta have some time to learn and work through it, um, work with others within the district. And so how do you create kind of that little zone of safety um, as you move into this, this form of success mm -hmm. and then constantly reflecting on like, how are we doing? Same thing it goes back to the rigor of not just like, does mm -hmm. it feel good? Mm -hmm. But you really, you do have to look at the test scores. You gotta look at attendance. We see awesome <coughs> drops in um, behavior issues. We had one school used to have like a hundred plus suspensions and this year they have like six. Mm -hmm. So we've seen these night and day anecdotes, but you mm -hmm. still gotta constantly be pushing yourself. Like what's the quality? Can, can I pile on yeah. for that? Because actually in, you know, in Massachusetts, the drive to personalized learning isn't coming from people that want to be released from our high standards. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we're known for having some of the highest standards in the country. Mm -hmm. We're also known for that a lot of the students that don't complete high school have actually already passed our standards. Um, so I think that although there is a lot of discussion about, you know, how we get to authentic um, you know, performance-based assessments and so forth and how that can add, you know, to a learning experience. Um, we shouldn't assume that it's about, you know, relaxing, relaxing standards. In Massachusetts, some of the highest performing districts are the ones that are, are 
quite very, very interested. They see this as the cutting edge of practice. They see this as the future of the teaching and learning of teach, teaching and learning. And so, you know, that's, you know, sort of from our corner of the world. And, you know, we're, we're kind of unique in that we, we kind of like our, <laughs> we kind of like our standards. Um, it's, it, they've done well for us. On the other hand, we know that we're not reaching all kids. We have some of the highest gaps. Mm -hmm. And so by getting kids more engaged, and I think these issues around attendance, around actual student engagement, student ownership, students understanding how this is related to the real world, um, they're, they're going to be huge improve. They're going to be huge improvements from from personalized learning, you know. But it isn't necessarily going to change our standards, and our commissioner has been very vocal about that. <laughs> so. Since you guys have a terrible baseball team, I'll give a California <laughs> example as and well. We're in football too. You know, and you've had, you've had, you have high standards in all things in Massachusetts. Chris is staying silent. Notice <laughs> the baseball the fan. Chicago Blackhawks. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, well, well, you know, Cal California went through this process, and you have a lot of educators in the room. But I'm, I'm, I may not be your friend after this. But I think that. The, what California did is a, is a case study. You don't have to read the white paper, but there's a great case study here where Jerry Brown and um, Mike Kirst, our state board president, really went through a process when they implemented Common Core, you know, these higher, deeper standards. Mm -hmm. They cut off the, um, the measurements and the, and, the, uh, and the test, reporting the test results for a couple of years because they knew they didn't mean much, right, the transition. Um, and then the statewide accountability formula, they took two years to really build that out um, to make sure it's thoughtful um, and it's, it's measuring what matters. Having said all that, I mean, I, when I started, I said as an organization, we are obsessed with college and career readiness. If that's that's our north star and the tools that are set up and the measurements that are set up are aligned to that then all the entities need to align to that whether it's the the education community um and you know this you're measured on reading and math uh i mean you need to make sure we nail that and i know there's lots of other metrics but but we want to make sure that the work and everything that go, that's going into that funnel with all the investments that are going in of time money everything else needs to really hone in on that goal mm -hmm. on the other side I, we see a lot of uh, a lot of entrepreneurs who are you know who are you know the stickiness and you know making sure, but the kids love this product. Yeah, but we've got to align back to what educational outcome they're doing, and where I encourage the entrepreneurs to focus on that too. Like, um, I'll, I'll give an outside example because they're in the room. There's a company called Trinet. Their whole thing for entrepreneurs is you know we will t mitigate your risk. We'll take away all your needs outside of your core business. So you can focus on your core business. We'll take care of your HR, we'll take care of all those things. By, by the way, Catherine's in the room, you can talk to her if you're an entrepreneur. But the idea is they will assume all that so you can focus on your core business. So I come back to the educators as well and say, you know, your core business is what we're measured by. Mm -hmm. And once we have that core business, get rid of all, all that other stuff, all the other distractions um, sometimes get in the way. Now, it's a lot more complicated because we want a holistic child. I mean, I, I value all that. Uh, you know, my daughter's going to be president in 2048, so i got to start preparing for that as well as her learning how to add and subtract. But, but I think it, 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 the, the deeper question here is how do we, if the state does it right, and I, in California, I mean, all kidding aside, I'm really proud of what Mike Kirst and Jerry Brown have achieved in terms of at the state level and the local control. 
control, but I'm also proud of a lot of the districts who are taking that local control uh, seriously and really implementing a way where they see where the North Star is and everything they do is aligning back to that and all the distractions, um, they're, they're pushing them out of the way. We're gonna do, I'm gonna do one more question and then we'll move to Q&A. So if you have any questions or you wanna vote on what people have said, put that on slido.com or on the app. Um, final question, at least for me. So it's interesting, okay, so throughout this conversation, it seems like we've sort of talked around the tech. The tech is part of it, but there's a lot of other elements connected to it. Yet the title of this panel is Personalized Learning and the Tech to Make It Happen, which almost implies that the tech is the main thing that makes personalized learning happen. Now, we sort of beat around that bush a little bit, but if you had one wish for how tech could support personalized learning in schools, what would it be? Did I scare you, Eileen? Well, the, the, I mean, basically, you know, if we could af afford one-to-one -one tutors for every student, that's, that's what we would have, right? But we don't. And tech is the way that you can scale personalized learning. Mm -hmm. I mean, because it can build in, you know, sort of bringing some part of the instructional process to where the student is, you know, within the context of a caring adult and the social learning community and so forth. So, you know, I'd be happy to go on and on to talk about which tech tools I think actually do that, but I don't see how it can scale, how you can scale it. As I said, teachers have been told to differentiate for how many years, you know, so any of you have any challenge with that? You know, so it's the tech, I, I think it's the, the, the selection of tech to support, um, you know, those instructional objectives that can do it. And you'd have to talk about which instructional objective to talk about which tech in my mind. Excellent. Uh, my one wish would be to get back to driving human interaction. It's kind of random as that sounds, but I think for ed tech where we've seen things really work well is not an assumption of there's no teacher or adult but a deep assumption that there is a teacher or an adult and having a very clear role and partnership with them. Because when you take a solid teacher and empower them with data or better understanding or delivery of curriculum or all that, I mean, they just, it's like you're removing the ceilings. It's just off to the races. Mm -hmm. But when we see these the other approaches that are much more to your point, like as I mentioned earlier, like headphones and kids at a screen, um, that doesn't work for all kids. That doesn't work for all subject areas. That doesn't work for when you struggle. There's a big part, I think, of growing up of like the mentorship and the social side and, and talking to human beings. And so how do we get EdTech back to like the role is help to drive human interaction and discussion and self-reflection, not to be the entire universe of learning. Because um, I also don't think that's a good vision for U.S. education right, but either. The, but, to, but, you know, to sort of throw in, in most, even for most of the good products, the recommendation is 45 minutes. Uh, you know, so it, assuming if, take for English, you have five hours or you have 250 minutes or whatever you have, I mean, it's talking about, um, you know, basically having 20% of that time. So I don't know, I, I don't know that anybody has a version, has a vision of personalized learning that's all kids, you know, on computers all the time. Um, you know, so I'm sorry, but no, it is a panel. I don't apologize. It is a panel. You guys can fight about it afterwards. <laughs> I would love to see that. No, and to build on that, I think to that, where it's, <laughs> If it's just 20% of your time, you know, is it a, 
is it a classroom where the kids are, are there working on a device and the teacher's not in, involved with the data? Or if there is a good design for a dashboard, intervention right. lesson, things of that nature, that's mm -hmm. where we've really seen the magic happen mm -hmm. where, yeah. you know, use, assume that you're in a good school with a good teacher and you can really make some stuff happen there rather than trying to cut people out. Right. I think that's the empowerment right. side. So. And our research has shown that basically it's no substitute for lack of classroom management and integration with kids. Exactly. In that it you know it's not a it's not a substitute we we found actually less usage and less um, effectiveness with students in in classrooms where there where there wasn't engagement already with the teacher. So um, you know there's so much research on that kind of actually how you implement and what, what are the core basics mm -hmm. that I think there's lots of conversations about that as well. So, you know, in Silicon Valley, we're, we're far less humble than Chicago and Massachusetts. You know, we, we think we can solve all problems through, through uh, our connection to the internet. Um, um, so I was, um, I, I mentioned Mike Kirst earlier and I was, I, as I was explaining our vision to him uh, about our strategy and how we're going to solve all the world's problems through an internet connection, he said, he goes, I'm a little older than you. Um, I, there used to be classes, you know, 30 kids, um, six rows, five to a row. And the radio came in. We were going to put radio, our, our radio in every classroom. We were going to pipe in the best lectures. Um, and so kids would learn, and then the teacher would move to the side, and you would listen to the best lecturers in the world, and then the teacher would come in and help, and you'd, you'd get such better outcomes. Guess what? 30 kids, six rows, five to a row. And then we got better at this technology thing. We brought in the TV in every classroom, right? We put a TV in every classroom. We piped in, in lectures with video, um, and we thought we were going to transform the classroom with that. Guess what? 30 kids, six rows, five to a row. And he, his punchline was, I see your little technology thing here. Tell me how this is gonna, um, gonna really transform because I'm still betting on 30 kids, six rows, five to a row. Um, all that to say, I think we need to come at this with a lot of humility um, and a lot of deep thinking and pivoting and changing. And it's going to take um, a lot more than the technology to do this. I think it's going to take a lot, a, a lot, a lot of testing and failing uh, and bringing things together. So I don't disagree with the both of you. Um, it, this is. I, I think we're still very early. We're still. You know, we're we're still trying to figure out. You know. Yahoo just went under. I mean, and we're still trying to figure out what, um, where we are in this thing. And, and my thought on this would be to really, really focus on, on outcomes, aligning those all the way from the school board to the classroom and, and how, to, how do we bring this to life. Wonderful. All right. We're going to take it to audience questions. Uh, so on the Slido app, let's see what's up at the top. Ooh. Oh, okay. So. Thumbs up. First big question. News you can use. For me as a teacher, <laughs> give me a couple ed tech tools for personalized learning I can use. You each get one tool, go. Lexia learning in the elementary grades. All right. Um, we saw uh, Think Circa um, for writing. Is that because that's a Chicago-based company? No, that is a bonus, Because I said Lexi. Kind of awesome. Yeah, I was going <laughs> to say. But uh, yeah, in our year one efficacy study, um, Lexi and Think Circa had uh, significant gains. So, thumbs up. All right. I, mean, I just uh, 
go back to the one I use uh, personally as a parent is Seesaw. It's a product where a lot of their content's going on. I mean, you're, 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 um, I see exactly what's going on in my child's classroom as, as I sit in Austin. I will share one as well. We do the 50 States Project every year at EdSearch, where 52 educators from across the country write about their favorite tools and how to use them. And Padlet always shows up in the top 10. It's fascinating. Three years in running, Padlet is always in the top. Awesome. So Lexia, Think Circa. Which one did you say? Seesaw. Seesaw, Padlet. Seesaw also pops up in the top yeah, 10. Fascinating. Okay, next up. What does technology-infused personalized learning look like in practice? I'll let anyone take this. I, I think it's uh, what it looks like is um, a teacher can predict a student's going, about to raise their hand before they do it, and they can walk over and help that student. I think you see a very busy classroom. There's sort of a hum of different differentiated activities going on, a lot of different learning plans, and so it's not, the equation isn't, one teacher plus 30 kids plus classroom plus one lesson. Mm -hmm. It's that's changing the game here around. There's a lot of different kind of things going on and there's opportunity for kids to explore as well. Okay. Find me. All right. <laughs> We're going to keep, I'm going to keep going so we can make sure we get to as many of these as possible. Um, next up for a classroom teacher, what is a good starting step for personalized learning? This is a good question while still meeting the standards like the state slash country dictates that we are required to have students master. I think you want to, you, more and more districts have folks who are thinking about this at the district level and just having those strong conversations of what are the tools out there, visiting great sites like EdSurge and, and just understanding what your learning goal is, what do you struggle with most, and what are the tools out there that help address that? Um, I mean, one thing for us with our, uh, the Leap Learning Framework, if you go to leaplearningframework.org, we just kind of open sourced it. Uh, Part of it, we, we put in a lot of like early strategies for teachers to get started around it. Mm -hmm. And all these teachers are held to the standards. And so it's a lot of like very beginning on how do you start to get to near your kids? How do you make that shift and steps to where the technology fits in as well? Excellent. Yeah, I, I would agree that it's really for what, wherever, what, what is your grade level? What is your subject matter? Uh, and in those particular areas, there are, you know, probably... Uh, products that you could start to pilot mm -hmm. if, if you really have a, ses, uh, a sense of what it is what it is you want to work on I mean is it is it basically dealing with a, a classroom that has you know seven different grade levels or is it uh, student engagement and ownership or you know is it some particular kind of content area and I you know that's what makes the conversation uh, difficult to that we could kind of each give different answers based on, you know, sort of where, what you teach. Wonderful. Okay, we're going to end on this last question here. And I think this is pretty appropriate given the fact that, who saw Christopher Emden speak on Monday? Was that not the most incredible keynote you've ever seen? Oh my goodness. Yes, I'll give that props. So personalized learning, we have not talked about equity at all on this panel. How do you ensure that you are fixing and writing the inequities in education with personalized learning? Oh, this is just so, it's so upsetting, really. In my work across Massachusetts, it's just, you know, to see the best funded, the highest performing districts embracing this 
And then, you know, in talking with our urban districts and our gateway cities and knowing that they just are still trying to get the 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 infrastructure that Mohammed talked about they're still they're they're trying to you know take the take the first steps um they don't have r&d budgets so doing pilots you know requires an extraordinary act of you know leadership and vision mm -hmm. it's um you know we just have to keep talking about it because it just the students have the greatest needs and the way we fund education um in this country based on property taxes mm -hmm. You know, even in states where, you know, we've tried to do more equalization, it's just, it's just a, it's a huge issue. You know, um, what we always say in Silicon Valley is it's, um, you, we take a look at the richest district in Silicon Valley because we have so many districts and you look at the poorest and we, and the, the answer we give is it's better to be a Hispanic in the poor district versus a rich one based on the results. Mm -hmm. um, so letting the data drive the conversation and the policy changes. We, we've, we've dug into this and what mm -hmm. we've seen is mm -hmm. that um, many examples. One is we took 18 districts and looked at transfer rates from sixth to seventh grade and we saw that uh, a Caucasian student and Hispanic and African American student had the same grade but the Caucasian student was placed in pre-algebra while the Hispanic and African American student was placed in general math. Now you can get a C in pre-algebra still be better off than an A in this class because your track just shifts. Um, but going with data um, to superintendents and organizations like ours and, and folks like yourself and, and letting the data show A, where the inequity is and changing the policy and then providing the tools that will address that inequity. Um, um, I think you've got to have the policy game in there, but also you've, you've got to provide the tools that address that. And the good news is there are, there are great tools out there that are addressing this challenge as well. Uh, I just love this question because we talk about a lot of equity and personalized learning and how much they fit together in the sense this is understanding every child and serving them properly. And so like in our work in Chicago, we're in public, we're in charter, we're in private because we want to be really clear this is for all kids. It doesn't matter where you're coming from. And I would totally build on what you mentioned with the data. Step one is just know who you serve and are you serving all of your students? Uh, it's been interesting this past year, we had a few suburban districts approach us for our work and they were very honest of just like the, the African-American and Latino students are getting a different education than our Caucasian and other students in there. But part one is looking at the data, being honest about that, and then talking about how are we going to make that shift. Mm -hmm. So it gets into differentiation, it gets into culturally relevant content, it gets into a lot of things that are kind of sticky and people don't always talk about, but you got to get it on the table as part of your why and why you're driving it. And I would kind of go back and mention, we just find the teachers over and over, they're aware and the principals are aware that they're not serving every kid, but how do you go from ignoring it and teaching to the middle mm -hmm. to actually stopping and being like, look, we're not serving number 30 and we're also not serving number one because he or she is, you know, gifted yeah. dropouts is really high in the States as well. So there's a lot of things here to unpack. I think step one is just getting it on the, on the table starting to have some of those difficult conversations that sometimes we like to push down as a community. Um, these suburban districts are really interesting because they're known as pretty, pretty affluent Chicago districts, but they're honest, they're like, we're changing demographics. It's different in terms of equity for reduced lunch. We need to change how we do education. Right. Please join me in giving these fabulous panelists a round of applause. This has been the EdSearch On Air podcast. This episode was produced and edited by me, 
Mary Jo Matta, and advertisements were read by Alice Meyerhoff. You can give us a grade on the quality of this podcast by rating us on iTunes or sending an email to us at feedback at edsearch.com. You can also subscribe on the iPhone podcast app, on Stitcher, on SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back again next week with more on the future of education. We'll see you then.